Now, Jordan, before we uh, post this on the, on the internet, you can edit this first part out before we actually get started with serious stuff. Um, actually, there is one serious thing I want to mention that I, I really don't want on the website. Um, but before I get to that, in case you missed it last Sunday, uh, there was no W flying at Wrigley. Hey, hate it if you want, but but the Sox won. Hey, as bad as the Sox are this year, we'll take it. We'll take it. 2020, 2020, you heard it here first, 2020. The, the other more serious thing I, would, I want to share with you, um, um, and again, I, I don't really want this on the internet, we'll... We'll look at God's Word in just a moment. I, I have mentioned from time to time some of my neighbors, and, and one of them I want to mention to you this morning and ask you to, to pray for him. His name is Harold. He is a retired electrical engineer. Um, he, is, uh, he has a doctoral degree in electrical engineering. You can talk about stuff way over my head. Uh, but over the last um, probably nearly a year, I guess it was late summer last year that he and I began uh, getting together from time to time, and um, I spent some time with Harold this past week, and I'll just summarize it by saying uh, the Holy Spirit is drawing him. He um, he's had exposure to the gospel. He actually grew up in a uh, in a small church in rural Oklahoma um, for a wide variety of reasons. I think uh, intellectual arrogance is one amongst many. Uh, some of it was some of the failings of uh, imperfect churches he saw, uh, but uh, he's just been bitter and angry toward the church, and uh, and I see his heart softening. I hear it. He's shared that with me, and uh, and I have asked that I ask God that I might have the opportunity to baptize him as my brother, um, if if not before, uh, certainly by the time we launch uh, Advent Church for South Loop. And the other thing I would ask you to do in connection with that is to pray for others of our neighbors. I could rattle off about two dozen names. I won't bother doing that now. Um, but, uh, but I tell you, it's, even when we planted a church in Arizona, it was never my desire. And frankly, I don't think it does a great deal of good for the kingdom. Um, some, to be sure. But it was never my desire to just start some new church for church people to come to. Um, I, I believe a, a church exists uh, for the eternal glory of God, uh, for the temporal good of those around, and that God uses that to till the, sar- the soil of hearts to, to receive the good news of Jesus. And we saw that happen in Arizona. It's my conviction we're going to see that uh, in the South Loop. And, um, you know, there are churches there now, a handful of them, uh, but, uh, but we have lots and lots and lots and oodles of people who do not know Christ, and many of them are our neighbors. Uh, well, all of them are in the South Loop, but many of them live close to us in our building and in the several blocks around our building uh, who we know by name, and, um, and I just ask that you pray for them. Um, I, I, I am begging God uh, for a church that, um, that sees what I like to call fresh fruit of new faith, and, uh, and I think we're going to see that in Harold and others of our neighbors uh, but I am also convinced that if we do, it won't be because 
we do this, that, or the other thing. It'll be because God responds to the cries of his people. And so I'm asking you uh, to be amongst them to pray for Harold and others of my neighbors. Uh, So uh, with that, pray for them, if you will. And I will invite you now to turn to uh, Joshua 13. We're going to be hitting several verses across several chapters. If you you looked at the the, uh, text that we have before us this morning under the sermon title, you'll see it covers a lot of territory. And um, I thought about having Jordan read it all, um, just for the sheer delight of that. But um, uh, in all seriousness, I got to tell you, I struggle with this because Honestly, I don't think there's anything that I can say about God's Word that is more valuable than God's Word says for itself. And so uh, I honestly do struggle, but we're going we're gonna to hit a few details. There's a lot of repetition uh, in here, um, but, uh, but there are some important details that I want us to highlight and see the value of them. In fact, I've titled the message this morning, Delightful Details. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've heard people say, and frankly, I've even uttered, uh, the phrase, details, details. It's usually a, um, a voice of, of uh, um, exasperation, uh, frustration, maybe even irritation with stuff that either gets in the way of our preconceived notions, uh, complicates our planning. That's typically when it comes out of uh, my voice. I'm more of a big picture guy and need people to handle those details. I'm not particularly good at them. I have to do them sometimes. But details frequently annoy me. Um, But what I want us to see this morning is that despite that notion, it is in the details of life, and certainly we see it in the text this morning, the details of life and work where we find the deepest meaning, the greatest enlightenment, and frankly the most satisfying fulfillment. And it's my hope and prayer that we'll see that today. Uh, I actually had a friend of mine years ago when I was still serving in eastern North Carolina. Um, I think I've shared with you before, I have, since moving to Chicago four years ago, I have watched more baseball, I've talked more about baseball, I've followed more baseball, I've cared about baseball more in the last four years than I ever had the previous 49 years of my life. And a friend of mine who loves baseball, played baseball briefly in college before he, he, uh, he hurt his knee, He told me once, he said, Dennis, if you would ever take time to learn the game, you would love it because the great joy of the game of baseball was in the details. And again, many other parts of life, we could see and understand this reality that details are where we find, again, the deepest meaning, uh, the greatest enlightenment, and the most satisfying fulfillment. Another example of that, by the way, when we were uh, living in eastern North Carolina, I think I may have shared with you before, in uh, in Bertie County, North Carolina, where I pastored two different churches, nearly every family celebration there, regardless whether it's a wedding or an anniversary celebration, a birthday celebration, graduation, sometimes even funerals, families will cook a pig. They'll cook a whole hog on a grill, typically homemade from from uh, an old oil drum, and I had a guy one time in my first pastor tell me, he said, Pastor, the best meat is always closest to the bone. And I hope it is um, our understanding when we leave here and looking at some of the small details of these several chapters that we'll find the best 
meat, the most satisfying meat is found in these details. Let's look at some of them. First thing I want us to see is that God's faithfulness is evident in the details. God's faithfulness is evident in the details. Again, in verse uh, 33 of chapter 13, which Jordan read for us, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And then in verse 45 of chapter 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The text reminds us that back in Deuteronomy 18, in the midst of a rather lengthy address as Moses um, is preparing for the people to go into the land and frankly preparing for his own death and preparing for the transference of leadership. In that rather lengthy address to the people, he speaks of, of uh, the promises to Abraham, the promise that, uh, that God had made to previous generations. And in the midst of that, he also uh, mentions that the Levites will not receive a piece of territory of their own. They're not going to receive some huge, vast stretch of land like the other tribes did. And part of the reason for that is he says that the relationship with God himself and the opportunity to serve him by serving and taking care of the tabernacle, eventually the temple, by being involved in all the, the uh, rituals of worship, that the Levites have their inheritance in their ministry and in their service and would not receive a chunk of land like the other like the other tribes. And what we find in Joshua's account is that just as Moses had declared this in a previous generation, before all the battles had been fought, before the walls of Jericho came down, that what had been promised, what had been stated, had come to pass. And of course, not only that specific reality with the Levites, But the fact that they took the land and were now possessing it was a demonstration of God's faithfulness in all of those details of how the land is laid out. And again, I would encourage you, if not this afternoon, sometime over the course of this week, to read these intervening chapters. What you find is that that, uh, as the land is doled out, some of it reads a bit like um, uh, contract language of a deed, if you will specifying location and place and boundaries and all of that sort of thing. And again, it may seem boring to us, but the key is that those details reveal God's faithfulness to do what he said he would do. Again, this is a consistent truth that God's faithfulness is evident in the details. One rather large detail in Luke chapter 24 is the uh, the followers of Jesus had come to his grave. You know, they had cast their lot with him. They, um, many of them believed he was Messiah. Some may have just been curious. But when he was crucified, it seemed like all of their time and investment of hope in this Jesus was gone. And so they go to the tomb, and in Luke 24, we find the angels reminding those who had come to the tomb, he is not here, 
but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus, God in flesh, had done exactly what he said he would do. He had been faithful to his promise. You know, it's interesting to me that sometimes uh, in our own time and place, I think we have grown so cold and cynical and so doubtful about humanity that when someone actually does what they say they will do, it sometimes astonishes us. Now, I was a, a young child in 1969, but for those of us or those of you who were old enough to remember what was going on in 1969, you may remember that Joe Namath, quarterback for the New York Jets in this startup American Football League, promised that the Jets would beat the Colts in the Super Bowl. Now, there were people who thought he was insane because Prior to that, the NFL had consistently demonstrated their superiority to this junior league. But Joe Namath and the Jets went out and they actually won Super Bowl III. And part of Namath's reputation was solidified just by that one event. They did what he said they would do. Again, it should not surprise us that God is faithful uh, to his promises, his commitments. And while I've shared it with you many times before, if, if there is nothing else I accomplished during my time with you, I hope that when I'm gone, you will remember that Jesus has said to his followers that the good news, the gospel, will be proclaimed to all nations, that is, all people groups, throughout the whole world as a testimony, and then the end will come. Because God is faithful and that is evidenced in the details, when Jesus says that to his followers, not only as recorded by Matthew at that time and place, but as he says also to us in 21st century America, as New Testament followers of Jesus, we can be confident that he will be faithful to his promise. God's faithfulness is evident in those details. Well, notice also that God's authority is evident in the details. Look at verse 6 of chapter 13. We're going back to hit some of the text we looked at last week for the sake of context. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, Mishrapoth, Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out, this is God speaking, from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And over in chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, the allotment of the tribe for the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edorn, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akabrim, passes along to Zen, and goes up south to Kadesh Barnea. Along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asman, goes to the brook of Egypt, 
and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the salt sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary of the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beit Hoglah and passes along north of Beit Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Now as you go throughout the remainder of chapter 15, you find very detailed description of the land with borders that are carefully defined. And further in the chapter, you find that cities uh, were designated to each of the families from amongst the tribe of Judah. Again, they didn't get one large stretch. There were cities that were set aside for those families. Excuse me, this is the uh, tribe of Judah. And he talks about all of these boundaries. Again, it reads a little bit like deeds to real estate. The same is true as you go through chapters 18 and 19. You hear the land divided up. You read about these places that most of us wouldn't know unless we looked at a a Bible atlas and learned where they are. But you find that all of the land is divided up. And all of it is laid out according to God's direction. Joshua chose to use the process of casting lots to determine some of this according to God's authority. As God gave direction. It wasn't simply a bright idea that Joshua had. It wasn't just the latest fad amongst God's people. And I don't know if you've noticed, but so much of, of um, American Christian life is a bit faddish. You know, something works in one place and, and people begin to mimic that. That's not what's happening here. The land was divided up according to God's direction and a process laid out by his authority. Now, why is that important to us? My dear friends, it's critical for us to remember that what we do as God's people in 21st century America is not shaped by our traditions, should not be at least, is not shaped by, again, the latest fad, not shaped by popular pressure, but what we do, we do by God's authority. That, after all, is why many evangelicals will draw their, their uh, lineage back to William Carey. If you've never heard that name, he was a, a pastor of a small Baptist church in England. And he posed the question in a meeting of pastors about whether the Great Commission was still binding upon us today. And that was in the late 18th century. There were some who condemned him. In fact, One elder pastor said in that meeting, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. If God chooses to save the heathen, he can do it without me or without you. And I would affirm that truth, he could, but God has, by his sovereign choice, chosen his people to do his work. And William Carey understood that. He understood that the Great Commission came not just because it was a good idea or practical, but it cuts to what Jesus said in verse 18 of Matthew 28. He said to his followers, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, it wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a, a good plan. 
But Jesus said that while you go, make disciples. As you're going, he understood, of course, that the, the time would come when those who followed him would spread from Jerusalem. Many chased away because of, of uh, military battles, the fall of Jerusalem. They ran in fear. Some of them spread because of what happened at the day of Pentecost. But Jesus, for whatever reason might come, knew that the people would be going. And he says, while you go, make disciples, that is, make followers for me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Again, it wasn't just a great idea. Jesus said that because in verse 18, again, he established his authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In our English translations, there's that word therefore in verse 19. That is in light of that truth that all authority is his. My dear friends, again, we live at his impulse. When we claim the name of Christ, we have said that we live under his authority. That was part of the passion of the radical reformers. Those who, amongst others, had the mantra, sola scriptura, scripture alone is the rule of faith and practice. Not tradition, not edicts from Rome or some other place, but rather scripture would determine how we live our life and how we do ministry. It was a a matter of submitting ourselves to the authority of God's Word and thereby submitting our ourselves to the authority of God Himself. My dear friend, I am convinced that as we read through God's Word, not only in this place in Joshua and the laying out of the land, But as we read through God's Word, we will find His authority evidenced in those details. That's what Paul said to the church at Corinth when he wrote to them, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We live under His authority, and His authority is evident in the details. Well, notice also that God's sovereignty is evident in the details. Look at chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. In verse 2, there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been appointed. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Now I want you to notice in verse 1 the passive verbs applied to the land. He says, or the passive verb, the land lay subdued before them. The land lay subdued before them. And in verse 3, he does not refer to the land you have taken, but rather the land which the Lord has given you. Now again, we may ask the question, so what? But it makes all the difference in the world in how we see God and how we see ourselves in relation to Him. 
If we understand that all that is accomplished is by His sovereign work, maybe through our labor. Again, the land was subdued by the people's fighting, the battles that took place. Remember, it was the the feet of the people of Israel that shuffled around Jericho for seven days before the walls fell. But it was still God's sovereign act. And here, even as a group of, of the Israelites were challenged to go and take what has been already given to them, to quit delaying, quit hanging around, quit putting it off, but to go and take what has been given to them, it is a reminder that, that God has already accomplished it. The battle's already been won. And again, it was by His sovereign choice and His sovereign action. Part of the beauty of that is that man cannot be exalted when we understand the accomplishment is God's Himself. Man cannot be exalted when we understand the work is accomplished by the Lord Himself. He is. When we recognize that even when we see the fruit of our labor and we recognize it is the the Lord's wisdom that He has given us, maybe to take some particular action, the stirring of the heart of someone, it's not our doings, it's His work. And He receives the praise as a result. When Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved you and your household. It was a, an acknowledgement of the sovereign work of God in that jailer's life and in his family's life. Notice Paul didn't say, do your best, become a better person, be better, and you can earn God's favor. No, he said, believe, trust in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a text I would guess you may be familiar with. For by grace, he says what? You have been saved through faith. Not you have saved yourself. Not you have figured it out. Not you're a better person than you were. Not you have earned God's favor because of all that you have done. In fact, he addresses that head on in verse 8. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one, no, is, no human may boast. It is a reminder that our relationship with him, our redemption, is a work of his sovereignty. And it eliminates any possibility for us to call attention to ourselves, to raise ourselves up as some shining example. But rather we are saved by His sovereign act. Again, the children of Israel had experienced that as well. Now friends, if we get this, it will free us from the moralistic notions that we sometimes get caught up in. And frankly, at 53 years old, having been raised in church, 
I have heard a lot of moralistic preaching. A lot of do-better preaching. A lot of man-centered preaching. And I must confess to you, I've been guilty of it. But friends, if we understand that what happens in our lives is His work, His choice, His determination, His plan, then the opportunity for our boasting and for us to call attention to ourselves goes out the window. And He alone receives the glory. Again, that was the point that Joshua was making. The land is subdued. It's already been done for you. It has been given to you. Take hold of it. The final reality I want us to see in the life of the Israelites is that God's love is evident in the details. God's love is evident in the details. Look at verse 43 of chapter 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God's love is expressed to both the current generation and to the previous generations through His actions on their behalf. Don't miss this important fact. God's love had been expressed to both the current generation and the previous generations by the actions that He had took on their behalf. He had taken on their behalf. It wasn't just to the current generation. But that He had done this as an expression of His Love. Remember when he called Abraham initially and promised to give his descendants that land. Abraham had no descendants. And God entered into a covenant with Abraham that Abraham was not always faithful to, but God was faithful to him. And he demonstrated his love not only to Abraham, but through the generations to this present generation by making all of those promises come to pass. Not one failed. The summary detail here harkens back to what God has said to His people through Moses, again back in Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy that is set aside for a purpose to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out, of the, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt.
Moses had already told the people that what they were experiencing, what they had experienced, what the previous generation had experienced, what the previous generations all the way back to Abraham had experienced was an expression of God's love for them. And notice that the love that God has for His people is not merely theoretical, nor is it merely emotional, but God's love for His people is demonstrated. It's an act. One of the things, I can't remember if I've ever shared this with you before or not, but when, when couples ask me to officiate their wedding, you know, I'll usually check the date, say it's free, I'll pencil it in, but I want to sit down and talk before I make a commitment. And I'll ask them, so why do you want to get married? Because we love each other so much. I have heard that so many times. And every time I'll say, so what does that mean? Friends, it troubles me that even those of us who claim the name of Christ seem to have such a thorough lack of understanding of the biblical concept of love. Surely God has made us, created us with emotions. In fact, our capacity for emotional expression and for volition, the act of our will, cognition, reasoning, all of that is part of what sets us apart from the rest of creation. It's why we are, it's, it's some of what defines how we are created in the likeness and image of God. Emotions are not inherently bad. But now, my dear friends, emotions do not summarize what love is. It doesn't sum it up. And if you ever wonder what does, I would encourage you to commit to memory 1 Corinthians 13. At least the section of it that describes love from verses 4 down through verse 8, I think it is. Love is patient, is kind, is not jealous, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. That means it's not chasing after its own agenda. Does not keep in, into account a wrong suffered. It is love in keeping score of how often you've wronged me. Love from a biblical perspective is demonstrated. There was a popular Christian song, I think maybe more than 20 years ago, that love is a verb is what it said. And that's what we see the Word telling us even in the Old Testament. It's not merely a New Testament concept. The God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. And what... God had said through Moses to his people is that I have loved you and that taking you out of slavery in Egypt was an expression of that love for you. Giving you this land was an expression of that love for you. It was demonstrated. And one of the greatest summaries of 
love I think we find in all of Scripture is in Paul's letter to the Roman church. In verse 5, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I can't help but be reminded of the words of the 19th century hymn writer, Frederick Whitfield, as he reveals this understanding, as he expressed his own love for Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. My dear friends, the details of God's word make so clearly evident to us his love for us. The love that he has always had for his people. Not because we charm him, not because we impress him, but because it is an expression of his own character and goodness to us. Even in the arduous reading of the legal code in Leviticus, we find expressions of God's love for his people. So much of that legal code was about providing civil society, protecting his people from consuming dangerous foods, and also demonstrating the value that he places on human beings, even those who reject him. All of that is an expression of his love for his people and frankly for all of humanity. And everywhere we turn, including the dividing of the land in Joshua, we find that it is an expression of God's love to his people. So what of it? I want to draw your attention to the bottom line. God's love is a demonstrated reality. It's not a vague feeling. God's love is expressed through his faithfulness to us. And God's sovereignty and authority are exercised not cavalierly, not capriciously, but rather his sovereignty and authority are exercised on our behalf. Now friends, I don't know about you, but as I encounter these truths, I find myself humbled, I find myself grateful, I find myself frankly amazed that he has chosen to use one such as me for his mission, his purpose, and his glory, again, as an expression of his love to us. My dear friend, let us recognize that while his love is demonstrated for us most clearly at the cross, that all of life that we experience, even some of the challenging things that we don't like, are an expression of his love to us. All of life is an expression of his love to us. And with that, my dear friends, I say we not only rejoice in that truth, but let us be instruments of his mission to demonstrate it to others. And frankly, there are times when we, when we need to simply show it and at the right time, give verbal expression to it. 
By the way, I don't buy that notion that we just show it and we never, we never verbally express his love for other people. We demonstrate it as he has and give expression to it. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?